We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, not the next millennium, next century. They ain't going to live that old. Take a look here at Mark in chapter uh, 2 that Charles read to you in verse 14. To show you what this text is about, if you'll look at verse 15, the healing of the, I'm sorry, verse 11 and 12, the healing of the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Verse 12, he got up, picked up his pallet, and went out. Get up, leave, go home. That's the paralytic. Verse 14, he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he got up, and he followed him. And in verse 15, he went to his home. Y'all see the parallel? It's called a hermeneutical landmark. It's like devil's stump sticking up wherever it sticks up at. You can't miss it. The calling of Matthew is always placed right after the healing of the paralytic. Rise and follow. And Matthew rose and followed. You can't miss it. The healing of the paralytic is the sign. The substance, the fulfillment, is the conversion of Matthew. And so this is greater than a physical healing, is a spiritual healing. If you have your choice between being healed from paralysis and being healed from sin, go with sin. And that's the whole purpose of a sign. And so this is your first in the New Testament. First what? This is your first repentant sinner. The guys that have been called so far have been followers of John the Baptist. They were those that sat in the synagogue, that sat in the uh, house of uh, Peter, that sat in verse 13 by the seashore and listened. This is a guy that was not in that vein of the faithful of Israel. Y'all know what a tax collector is? Well, you say, yeah, I do, okay. Well, these are not where the faithful of Israel went. If you were a tax collector, no father would give his daughter to marry you. If you were a tax collector, uh, the organizations within Israel, you could not be a part of them, and you could not be permitted in a synagogue. You were considered a Nazi sympathizer. And so to become a tax collector, you gave up everything for money, and you went with the Gentiles. And so this is your first repentant sinner. Uh, he's going to look real familiar to you. You know what he's going to look like? Kendall. That's what he's going to look like. And me, and you, and Pat. He's, he's going to look like us. And we're going to see the first profile of what a disciple looks like is in this guy. Well, let me explain first about his name. Uh, He's called Levi, and his name is Matthew. One interpretation is, is that Jews had a Judean name and a Galilean name. Another is that this is his apostolic name. I'm going to call you Peter. You are Bonerges, the sons of thunder. We're going to call you Barnabas. It's when God takes a man for himself, uh, he will rename him. Abram, you are Abraham. Uh, Jeroboam, you are now Gideon. And so he'll, he'll rename them. And that's what it is believed happens here. That Levi is a mockery of this man. The name Levi is a Hebrew word that means to be attached. It was the name given to the man who would be the progenitor of the priesthood, the Levites. And so Levi, you remember that's when uh, the woman Leah said, now my husband will love me. I've given him a son and I'll name him attached 
Well, that's what his name means. You would have named a kid Levi because that's what you wanted for him in life. I want him to be attached and connected to God. His name was a mockery because he is what is called from the other gospels. He's not simply a, a tax collector. He is a moksha, M-O-K-S-H-A. He is a chief tax collector that the other tax collectors and a tax collector would buy the right from Rome to be a tax collector. And so you had the authority of Rome to interrupt people in commerce like on Capernaum at the Sea of Galilee and the uh, Via Maris, the way of the sea where you would come from the north down into Israel into down to Egypt. You were there on 635 and I-20 is where you were. And so you could get anybody with goods and it was up to you what you wanted to tax them. And you could give the baseline to Rome and then to the degree that you were uh, an extortioner, you could get what you wanted from the people. And so that's a tax collector. They were traitorous, they were covetous, and they were simply called sinners, that they had rejected their Jewish heritage and they had gone after money. And the way they could do it was to have the, the authority of Rome behind you. A good example of this, did you ever see The Sound of Music, Julie Andrews? You remember Rolf, the kid you learned to hate? He was the little, you know, Western Union guy there in Austria. And uh, is it Austria? Okay. Yeah, that was awesome. And here comes Hitler and the Nazi regime. And he made a choice that he would follow Hitler. And he sees the Von Trapps fleeing and he is faced with a decision. Do I go with the system or do I go with, with love? And he went with the system and he blew the whistle on the Von Trapps and there was nothing they could do because Rolf was in love with Nazism, with the power that Nazism gave him over people that formerly he was underneath them. That is a tax collector. And so he made his decision. And he said to his heritage, to his name, to his parents, to his nation, to God, and to his soul, he said, to heck with it. I'm going for the dough right now. Have any of y'all ever made that without standing up and pointing? <laughs> Have any of y'all ever made that decision? Yeah. We have, we're Gentiles. And uh, that's the decision that he made. His name, how are you gonna get out of this mess? You're condemned. The only way you can get out of this mess is that somebody from the outside has gotta deliver you. There has got to be a gift of God. The word gift of God in Hebrew is pronounced Matthew. And so God intervenes in this man's life and makes him his disciple. This is the first guy that when you see that he's a disciple, you go, what? Y'all ever do that with people that come to Christ? That this guy has become a Christian? No way. God's an infinite God. I don't care. My buddy, John Bowles, who's probably watching this, got saved right after I did. And his, uh, the team chief hellraiser named Steve, came to me and he said, can I ask you a question? And I like looked around to see, make sure nobody was looking. What happened to Bowles? I said, he became a Christian. And John looked, or Steve looked around again and he said, and what is a Christian? He wanted to know what happened to this guy. And so God is going to intervene in him. And as we start looking at Matthew, he's going to look very familiar. He looks like you and he looks like me. Well, the first thing you see here about him in 14, he is sitting in the tax booth. Up till now, people have been sitting in the synagogue, listening to Jesus, sitting in Simon Peter's house, listening to Jesus. Or in verse 14, 
uh, sitting at the seashore and listening to Jesus. He, in contrast, is sitting in the tax booth. He is paralyzed, just like the paralytic. He is dead in his sin. Uh, He had made this decision, and it is out of this matrix of, of darkness and being in the clutch. Have y'all ever gone back in your pagan lives? I have done this. And thought about all the times you could have died. Yeah, I have. I would have died and gone to hell. And I would have had no knowledge of the gospel. And God would have been perfectly just in condemning me for the light that I had rejected. And, uh, I, and you know what? Never, ever in my pagan life did I ever stop in the reverence of God and fear. There is none who seeks for God, no, not one. There was never a time I prayed, unless we were playing like Arkansas or, or TCU. I never prayed. I never went to church. I never opened a Bible. I did not seek God because uh, I had no appetite for God. I had no taste for him and neither did you. Amen? Neither did you. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Same word used for Peter catching fish and drawing him into the boat. He's got a God has to overcome you and bring you. And so as a result, he is summoned by how? The word of God. Follow me. Follow me. God has a plan for him. You'd have said what? To, to burn him alive? No. I've got a plan that he will be the first author of the New Testament. This guy, this guy. This guy who has spurned the old, this guy. I will glorify myself through this man. Remember, Mark is written to the Romans, Luke to the Greeks, John to the world, Matthew. Who's it written to? Jews. If you were a Jew reading about the salvation in Jesus Christ, written by Levi, son of Alphaeus, you said, no way, no way. It would have to be a new creation. God who speaks life out of death and light out of darkness, who calls into being what doesn't exist. Only the word of God could do this. And that's what he does. And that's how you and I were saved. It goes like this. Let me give you your family heritage. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that energizes sons of disobedience. And then Paul says, lest you think he's getting down on the Gentiles, he said, among them we too, meaning the Jews, formerly lived in the lust of the flesh. Uh, Among them we too all formerly lived uh, in the lust of the flesh and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in love or mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us, past tense, it's already done, in the heavenlies with Christ. Ain't that something? What was your responsibility? You have no verbs in there except but God intervened. And so that's Levi, and that's you, and that's me. So this is, you're going to put a name on this guy, you can call him rebel without a cause. He has nothing to live for. And now follow me. God's given him something. Isn't that great? Well, keep watching here in verse 15. What does it mean? And he does. He rises because there is life in him. 
He leaves everything behind because God who, how did Paul say? God who created uh, light out of darkness is the one who has spoken in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that is in the face of Christ. He looked at him and he spoke and he said, follow me. You ever sing that song, uh, I know whom I have believed? One of the verses goes, I know not how the spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus in his word, creating faith in him. Did y'all know y'all were singing a Calvinistic song? But I know whom I have believed in. Well, that's what the author of that song marveled at. I don't know how God did this, but he created faith in me. And so in verse 15, what does it look like to follow him? It happened as he was reclining at the table in his house. Put down number one, he invites Jesus into his home. Uh, you should be saved, you and your whole household, to the Philippian jailer. And he came into the house of Cornelius, where he was there with his friends, the house of the first Gentile. Uh, where else? Peter invites Christ into the house of he and his mother-in-law and his wife. Matthew into his house. You notice how often that Christianity begins in the home? Are you with me? Do I need to beat this horse and make you feel guilty? It has to start in the home. You can't be peddling unapplied truth. And what you are in the home is what you are. And so he invites Christ into his home. Book of Ephesians. Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. A guy wrote a famous little pamphlet on that once called My Heart, Christ Home. He comes into your life. And so I want your life. I want it to be in your home. And number two, they're at table. They ate together, which is what the Christian life is. It goes like this. You ready? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and him with me. I will eat with him and he will eat with me. It's a two-way conversation. The word panos in Greek, P-A-N-O-S, is the word for bread. The one that you ate bread with was your kompanos. What word do we get there? Your companion. You ate bread with. Uh, and that's what the Christian life is. It is a companionship with Christ. When you eat with somebody, you talk. All right. He talks with us by his word. We talk with him by prayer. The Christian life is not just an academic thing of learning. It's a spiritual thing of prayer. It's not just a mystical thing of prayer. It's an academic thing of learning. And so there is an exchange that we have. Whenever Israel comes out of Egypt, what's the feast that they remember their redemption? It's called the Feast of Passover. And it's a meal. They ate with God in a sense. We don't have Passover. We have the, the last Passover was the first Lord's Supper. We called it the last supper. That's a bad term. It's the first supper. And we ended Passover with the Lord's Supper. And that's why we celebrate co-union, communion. It's the Lord's Supper. This, and he becomes the main course. This is my body. This is my blood. And he brings us into a covenant. And so we have fellowship with him. Uh, someday, when Christ returns, we will have the wedding feast of the Lamb. And you know what we're going to do in heaven? It's, you see the river of life coming down? 
And then you see the tree of life. We're going to eat and not get fat. All right. What's that song you sing at Christmas? It's the most fattening time of the year. Okay. And so he invites Christ into his home. And the Christian now is in fellowship with Christ. Let's get a little guilt going. Do you spend time in your Bible? You and the Lord? Do you do that? You can't say just come to church. I can't be a substitute. I got to be a supplement. You got to be in the Bible with God, enjoying his word. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow spiritually. And so in verse 15, he does something else. He's dining with Jesus and his disciples. Incidentally, little note here. If you're going to follow Christ, are you going to have to eat with who he eats with? Yes, you are. You think that some of the disciples, Edersheim has made the note, the great scholar on this, that these men were from Capernaum and the area, they're from Naphtali. All of them had dealings with Matthew. And he said, I'll assure you, none of them liked him. But now he's a new creation. You remember when Paul went to Jerusalem after they tried to kill him in Damascus? And none of the disciples in Jerusalem would eat with him because they thought there's no way this guy is saved. Can't Christ save anybody? Yeah, but not him. He can't. And so if you're going to follow Christ and he's going to be there at Samaria with the woman at the well that's had five husbands and now that she, won, now that she, she now has is not her husband, you're going to have to fellowship with them. And so you eat with who he eats with. And so in verse 15, it says, and there were many of them. It says in 15, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with him. What is that called whenever you go out and get the people in your nearest social circle and you say, I have met a man who forgave me. I have met a man that does marvelous things. He is the very Messiah and he loves me and takes me and has forgiven me. He called me away from my life and I have followed him. I want you to meet him too. And so I'm going to sponsor a meal in my home and I want all you guys to come. Uh, Edersheim has pointed out that this guy had to have a pretty good sized house because he had some revenue to work with. And so he says, I want you to know the man that I have met. What's that called? Starts with an E, sounds like angelism. Yeah, it's called evangel. That means the good angel, the good news, the good message. Evangelism is, I want you to hear what I heard and I want you to see who I saw. I want you to hear who I hear. I want you to know this man. And notice that he starts with the people in his nearest social circle. That's where you start. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where you are. Then Judea. And then we're going to press it a little, Samaria. And then we're going to Pilot Point. Okay. <laughs> the outermost parts of the earth. But we're going to start here and go out there. When I got saved, I first told my family. And my, I said, Mama, I've become a Christian. She said, you've always been a Christian. I said, no, I've always been a sinner. And she said, no. And I said, yeah. And she said, no. And I said, yeah, okay. And then I went to my Pawnee Martin, my former Sunday school teacher at Herring Avenue Methodist Church. And instead, I've become a Christian. Would you like to come speak to our Sunday school class? And I did. And so I talked to my former Sunday school class. And then I talked to the guy that played center for us and the guy that played tackle for us. And then uh, I talked to my uh, education class. I had to do a presentation for education. 
and I did it on the gospel. And one of the girls said, you're not going to be able to do that in the school. I said, well, maybe so, but I did. <laughs> and then I uh, talked with uh, the guys, the coaches that I was student teaching with in Louisville, Texas. Then I talked to an FCA group and I got to talk to the school. And so it was, and then I went and talked to the guys at Certainteed Aluminum that I worked with in uh, Waco, Texas. And then I talked to the people that came into Kino's convenience store over on Avenue C, where I got a job uh, whenever I tore up my knee and was, my career was over. And I would talk to them that would come in. And so no one told me I had to witness. Why did I witness? Because I had to. I had to. There, there was something that happened to me. And that's what Matthew does. He says, y'all come here. I want to, I got to tell you something. I'm no longer a tax collector. Why? I'll tell you why. And notice what else he did. It said in verse 15, they were many of them and they were following him. Who's the they? The former other tax. He made a dent in the tax collector market there at Capernaum. And so it's called an impact it's called evangelism and discipleship. Now the disease that he has caught, Christ, he passes it on to others. And so that's what a disciple looks like. He invites Christ into the inner part of his life. He fellowships with him. He shares his faith and he watches others go on. Incidentally, there's a great cross-reference right here. Jesus said, sending the 12 out, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Think about that. Why is it that we all keep the faith? Because we have to. Because we've been converted. Amen? Jesus said, if they do that with me, they're going to do that with you. That you have got the lightsaber. And it's going to work. When you introduce men to me, you're going to see them converted just as solidly and as soundly as that if I myself talk to them. I'm converted. I still have not seen the physical Lord Jesus Christ, but I did see Jerry Cook of the Navigators that talked to my roommate and I listened over his shoulder and it ricocheted off my roommate, played defensive end. And they're all going to hell. Okay. And it hit him and ricocheted to me. And I got as converted as if Jesus himself had talked to me. Isn't that something? So I am putting something in your hands that you have no idea what I am putting in your hands. Well, and if you look in verse 16, are you with me so far? Everybody feel bad? That's why we're here. Okay. In verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees, escrivir, to write, script, to write. A scribe is within the caste of the Pharisees, and they are Old Testament copiers and scholars. Sometimes they're called lawyers. They are the academicians that they know the Talmud, they know the Mishnah, the oral tradition and the written tradition. They know the, the, the Torah, the law, and what the interpretations have been. Well, they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax gatherers. And they said to the disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? The fifth thing that you see about following Christ is you have to take the heat for Christ. I don't like the guy y'all are talking about. And because of that, I don't like you either. Does that happen to us? Yes. When you become a Christian, there's a train coming. Okay. And you've got to deal with that. He is the stumbling block to the world. And so what they have a problem with 
is the issue of forgiveness. We've got a problem with forgiveness. Edersheim, the great scholar, he made an interesting comment back in 1893. He said, rabbinic thought had a lot to say about repentance, but it had nothing to say about forgiveness. That you were always groveling, but it never objectively gave you a sense of forgiveness or it was weak on it. He said, rabbinic Judaism had a lot to say about sin, but it had virtually nothing to say about the sinner. And yet when you read the Psalms, you read of the great forgiveness of God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as a right standing. And so blessed is the man whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sin has been covered, whose sin God will not take into account. David after the Bathsheba incident. And so they have a problem with his forgiveness. How many of you, after you got saved, you went and started talking to people about spiritual things and you made the statement, I'm going to heaven for sure. And they said, whoa, whoa. And how do you know that? Because I have believed in Jesus and that's it. Whoa. So you're telling me that you live like hell all the way to the end of your life and right in the 11th hour, you pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your life and you are scot-free. That's what you're saying to me? That's what I'm saying to you. Incidentally, is there a guy in the Bible that sinned like crazy until the last three hours of his life and said, Jesus, remember me? Today, it's done. They have a problem with this. Remember, I talked to you last week about going into the philosophy class and talking about comparative religion. Well, when they had the Hindu in there that said there you know, is one life force through everything and your suffering is because of what you did in the previous life, as bizarre as it is, people had no problem with that because that really didn't morally offend them. Uh, when you talk about Buddhism, that you break the reincarnation cycle by meditation to where your body goes into a complete nothingness state, nirvana. Okay. The Beatles. John Lennon. Okay. Men don't have a problem with that morally. It's bizarre and they won't do it, but they don't have a problem. In Islam, you know, you get to heaven by keeping the, the five pillars. You do stuff. And you die with your fingers crossed. You hope you're good enough. It doesn't morally offend you. When you say that you are lost and condemned and impotent. And by the word of God, the death of God, and the grace of God, you are saved. We have a problem with that. Because it rubs me the wrong way. I don't like being told that I am no better than anybody else. I don't like being told that I'm not smart enough to figure out the heavenly things. And I don't like being told that there has to be an incarnation of God on earth and fulfillment of his word to die where I, by, I might by faith be saved. That is called the stumbling block and the rock of skandalon. S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N in Greek. What word do we get? Scandal. He is the rock of scandal. What is a scandal? It's when you do evil? No. It's when you thought you were good and it all came out. That you're not righteous. That you are a sinner. That is called a scandal. And Christ is the rock of scandal. You go into heaven. Well, if you died right now, where would you go? I think I'd go to heaven. Why? Well, and you start going through your resume, all the stuff I've done. I got some good news. What? You're totally depraved. <laughs> See, I went to that class and I said, you've heard a lot of this stuff. The Bible says your deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. Literally the rags of uncleanness that is used about a woman's cotex. Any questions? 
You could see the fangs come out. I had offended them. I had said, you are scandalous. If there's things about you that we knew that you knew, we would call the law on you right now. And so they've got a problem with the gospel. Forgiveness. Well, verse 17. In verse 17, Jesus gives you three reasons why we aren't Amish. Now, let me explain that. How do the Amish deal as believers with a sinful world? You just move away to Ohio. Okay. You move away. You group together. You identify each other by external signs, beards, hats, and whatever. You don't talk with them. You don't associate with them. Their favorite verse is from 2 Corinthians 6, come out from what is unclean and I will welcome you. They leave you and I and they group together. Is that the way we're supposed to deal? No. And so Jesus is going to give you reasons why do you eat with these people that, incidentally, you remember when Christ talked about church discipline, Matthew 18? Go to him in private then take two or more. If he doesn't listen, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, let him become to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's outside the covenant. He's an unbeliever. Well, why does Jesus say you're supposed to eat with these guys? Let me ask you, uh, how many non-Christians do you know on a first name basis that you associate with every day? It's been found that Christians lead people to Christ only in the first two years, they are Christians. After the second year, they lead no one else to Christ. Certain studies. Why is that true? Because they're not around non-Christians anymore. Because we acclimate them here in the cult. And they no longer mix it up. They will only do business with Alpha Omega lawn care. You know what I'm saying? And so you've got to mix it up out there. And so in verse 17, he says, here's why, because verse 17, number one, they're sick. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, meaning the self-righteous. They don't want me, but I came to call the sinners. So why do you do this? Because they're sick. What should be a Christian's relationship to the world? As long as you understand who they are, who you are, and why you're here, you can fellowship with all the non-Christians you want to. Because a doctor is not trying to catch your disease. Uh, who gets COVID shot first? Oh, they, besides the old guys. Okay. Yes, yeah, the, the healthcare workers. We've got to have healthcare workers healthy so they can take care of Skip. And he's 73 years old. He's going to die any moment. So they've got to be healthy. Okay. And so he says, these guys are sick. Incidentally, what did a tax collector look like? He was rich. He had a lot of swag and he had a lot of clout because he had broken free of the system. Jesus saw underneath that, you're sick. Is that true about us? A lot of times there's a front we put up, but you get them off by the side and you find out there's a hurting unit down there. And secondly, in verse 17, I'm a doctor. I heal bodies as a sign that I heal souls. So that's why I'm here. Incidentally, we're seeing here a progression. You ready? We started with the leaders of Israel and they rejected him. 
and the Judean ministry of the gospel, John 1 through 4. And then we go to the synagogue up in the north. And then we go to the major populace in Peter's household. And then we go to the outcasts like Matthew of Israel. And then we're going to go one step further once we get the outcast Jew. Guess who the next stop is? It's you. We're going to go to the Gentiles, the, the dogs. And who we're going to get among the dogs? Consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the stupid things of the world. What a rude book. <laughs> he has chosen the stupid things of the world to shame the wise and the base things of the world to shame the proud, the things that ain't, to shame the things that think they are, my translation. And so Christ is going to keep sinking to the depth of humanity. Are you glad? Yeah. Well, anybody else here been drunk in the Lemon Tree Lounge in Dallas, Texas on Harry Hines? Okay, let's continue. TC, don't you do it. All right. And verse... I never could share that while my mother was alive. Okay. In verse 17, I did not come. They are sick. I am a physician and I'm here to fix them. That is my purpose in life. As long as that's your attitude, you can get among all the loss that you want. They're sick. I'm healthy and I want to fix them. Y'all watch Gunsmoke, the great Christian show that came out in the 50s. Uh, you remember Doc Milburn Stone? It is so great. It, somebody will have yellow fever, spotted fever, and he'll go running in. Uh, he'll have a former enemy that he hated get shot, and Doc will take him and bring him into his clinic there up the stairs and people will always say like Chester, doc, why are you doing that? And doc will say, I'm a doctor. I took an oath. That's who I am. I don't care who he is. I don't care if he's gone through his own hanging and the rope broke. I'm going to make him well so we can hang him again. And that's the way we are. Why do you hang with those guys? That's who I am. That's why I'm here. That's why I've been left. Remember Hendricks saying to us at the seminary, big question you got to ask. Number one is why did God save you? Once you know that, you're now rooted in grace. Then the next question is why has God left you here? Why don't we just baptize you and hold you under send you to glory. You ever wonder that, Pat? Why has he left you as a physician's assistant? That's why. Well, in verse 18, first they said, you guys are too familiar with the lowly. And in verse 18, they say, and you're too darn happy. John's disciples and, G and the Pharisees were were fasting and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? Your disciples don't fast. The disciples of John fasted because that was John's message was repentance. And they were probably fasting because the nation since 586 BC had been in exile and under pagan dominion because of their violation of the law. And there, there had never been a great time of Jewish repentance. So he's calling on them to repent. The Pharisees would fast twice a week, remembering the past sin of the nation. Why do you guys not fast and sorrow over the nation's sin? Why do y'all party down over here and eat and drink? Well, verse 19, 
It's because we're at a party. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. And that's what the disciples are. They're the attendants of the bridegroom at the wedding. So long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. Why don't you fast? Answer, I'm at a party. I'm at a wedding. The happiest of all events. I'm at a wedding. Question, who is the bridegroom? Jesus. Who are the attendants, the disciples? Who's the bride? The bride, if you know your Old Testament, you remember the book of Hosea? Uh, his wife, Gomer, forsook him. There was a picture of how, and he had to put her away as God would do Israel and then bring her back again. The book of Ezekiel sees Israel as a waif cast out and God saves her and raises her up till she's old enough and then takes her as his wife. Uh, the book of Isaiah uh, speaks of Israel uh, as a picture of, uh, of Sarah that has become the fruitful woman when there was no life. And so Israel is the bride of God. They have been put away because they, quote, went a-whoring after other gods. They're divorced. Will Hosea take Gomer back? Yes, he will. And so what we're seeing is the remnant of Israel that are becoming reunited with their God. So who are the bridegroom? I'm sorry, who's the bride? It's the Jews that are coming and are becoming reunited with him. Question, is the whole nation of Israel going to reunite with him at this time? No, they're not. They're going to kill him. He will then set them aside and he will go get others that will become the bride of Christ. Who are we talking about? The church. Comprised of the Jew first and then the Greek. And so why are you so happy? Because I am watching the joy of Christ taking back his people. Remember at the uh, parable of the prodigal son? When a man loses a sheep and finds him, he says, come rejoice with me. A woman loses a coin, come rejoice with me. I found it. A man loses a son, kill the fatted calf, and they began to be merry. Jesus said, shepherds love sheep, women love jewelry, fathers love sons, and I love these people. And so why are you so happy? Answer, because we're watching God become reconnected to his people. That's why. It's their joy. Well, there's an interesting little verse 20. But the days will come when the bridegroom is not just going to leave. He's going to be taken away. Isaiah 53 about Messiah. He will be taken away through oppression and injustice. He'll be taken away and they will fast in that day. Amidst all of this joy, Jesus drops a bomb. There's going to be a day, there's going to be some serious sadness because the reason these people are going to live is because somebody is going to have to die. Question, who's it going to be? Who's the bridegroom that's going to die? Jesus. This is the third time in his ministry that he introduces the idea of the cross. The first was Simeon when he was eight days old. Mary, someday a sword will pierce your soul. The second was at, in Jerusalem at the first day of his ministry. Who gives you the authority to do this? Tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. Speaking of the temple of his body. What gives you the authority? I'm the son of God and I will rise from the dead. You tore down the temple and I'm going to raise it up. What is the temple today? The body of Christ. And this is the third time. The Bible is careful to let you always know that the death of Christ is not 
the defeat of God's plan. It is the fulfillment. He knows everything that's happening. Why will the disciples mourn in that day? Peter said, spoke of the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the blood of Christ. What is the most precious thing to our faith? The death of Christ. Why would they mourn? Because they didn't understand. The Bible never, this is amazing. How do you know Christianity is not invented by men? Because the first Christians didn't believe it. Aren't you glad God didn't answer Peter's prayer? This will never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. And so someday they're going to mourn. Isn't that phenomenal? At the wedding feast, he puts a damper. Somebody's got to die and it'll be me. Verse 21 and 22, tremendous application. No one sews a patch uh, of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, a patch pulls away. The new from the old, worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. The wine will burst because the skins won't stretch anymore. The wine is lost. In other words, you can't have the old and the new at the same time. One of them's got to go. Context, what is the old? John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting because of the past, because of Israel's sixth century disobedience. Now what is happening? There is an obedience taking place among Matthew, the disciples, the tax collectors, the woman at the well. We're starting to see them come back and he is rejoicing that their sins are forgiven. So why don't you fast? It's past. That has changed. There is now newness. You can't combine the old and the new. You notice wine and wineskins, new garment. When do you put on a new garment and new wine? At a, at a wedding. If you're going to go to the wedding of the Christian life, of what the Christian life is, the gathering of people to intimacy with the bridegroom, you got to have a new dress code and you got to have a new BYOB. All right. You cannot bring the past in here. You cannot enjoy the forgiveness of God if you are constantly groaning over your past. You dig? I taught the Song of Solomon years ago. I found the mother load of biblical preaching. And when I taught it in Dallas at Metro, there were 4,000 Dallas singles there. And I was teaching about the beauties of biblical marriage and romance and sex and intimacy. And as I would teach these girls out there, packed in, and they would do this. Because they were remembering their past. The guys wouldn't cry. They'd just look at you poleaxed. And so I would have to stop in the message and go, wait just a minute. This is why we have what's called a savior to fix us from this stuff. You can't bring the old into the new. Now, are we talking about present sin? No, that's another sermon for another day. If you're gonna go to the last supper with Christ, remember, I've got to wash your feet. Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Then we don't have any fellowship. Wash my whole body. No. If you're clean, which you are saved, you don't need to take a bath again and get resaved. But you do have to wash your feet. So do we confess our sin? Yes. What sin do we confess? The dirt of the day. We confess our present sin. But... Do we have to always go into our past? No. If you do that, what's going to happen? You're going to tear the garment. You're going to burst the wineskins 
And what's going to be lost? The new. You're going to lose your joy if you continually live in the past. Isn't that great? Whew, I'm glad. I heard a kid once say, I can do something God can't do. What's that? Remember my sin. And so this is a marvelous idea. If you're going to enjoy the delight of God, you got to be done with the past. We would have girls in our church, I know I've counseled with them, that had been through an abortion. And they would struggle to get on the other side of that. And there's never been a girl that's had an abortion that a guy was not responsible. And I've had men that struggled. And where do I take them to? Right here. You got to be done with it. Are we glad? I'm glad. I will like separate as the east is separated from the west. I will cast your sins to the bottom of the sea. Micah says, and put up a no fishing sack. We'll never go there again. You're clean. He has washed us from every evil deed to present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot nor wrinkle. A spot is something so ugly you think it can't come out. You know what a wrinkle is? You ever give your grandkids a bath and they have granny beads? A little wrinkle, the dirt's still in them. There'll be no wrinkle. You think nobody knows it, God knows it, and it's gone. You're clean. Are you glad? You're clean. You know, in our counseling program, and I'll be done with this, but and I want to make sure you understand. I don't want to get an email. Tommy, I heard you were soft on sin. There is present sin and there is past sin. When we have communion, do we examine ourselves for present sin? Yeah. But he also says, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. We're done with the past. But wash your feet every day. You wash your feet. But we're done with the past. But we had in our counseling program, one of our counselors told me, there's a particular ideology in America. It's the first American denomination. It came about in the north, in the southeast back in the early 1800s. And basically, they thought they were the only ones that were in heaven. And you could gain your salvation and you could lose it. You're always losing your salvation and trying to make sure you got back to church on time to get resaved again. We used to have a guy who played for North Texas. He was in this denomination. And uh, when we would travel, he would often fall into adultery. And he was anxious to get back home so we could go forward and get saved all over again. See, This kind of belief that you can lose your salvation will make you have a low mechanical distaste of God. Because the idea is that he really doesn't love you. He just tolerates you. And the reason we're Christians is because heaven's better than the lake of fire. It's not because you love God. And so we would get people that had come out of that belief system. And the common thing they felt was their distaste of God. They didn't like him because God didn't like them. And he was always hanging over them to punish them. And so the counselor told me that when we would catch people that would come in struggling with a problem and we would identify where they came out of, he said the counseling stopped right there. And we quit trying to deal with the particular thing they were doing in marriage and drugs and pornography and anger or whatever, you stopped. Because you realized, he said, that it was like climbing up a cliff that was slick moss on it. You couldn't get your hand in there. You couldn't tell them why you should obey and why you should not sin. Because they really didn't like God. And they couldn't trust him. And he said, we had to stop and go back and re-educate them on the grace of God. Well, good story, isn't it? There is your first convert in Christianity. From a mockery to the gift of God. Father in heaven, thank you for a time in your word. And uh, our man Matthew looks very familiar to us. He looks like what we were. 
He looks like what we became. He looks like what we should be. And that man had no idea that he would be the guy that would be raised up to pen the gospel of forgiveness to the Jewish nation. The guy that nobody liked and nobody could hold with any credibility became the guy to tell the most religious people in the world, this is how you get saved. And Mark lets the Romans know, it'll work. It'll work. This is the way men are made new. And so, Lord, if there is anybody in here that has still got a, a memory of the stain of their past, let them have that belief of Naaman the Syrian that once he dunked in the Jordan, that he came up with flesh like baby's flesh to start all over. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.